We are in a series called Text Message, and uh, around the world, 23 billion text messages are sent every day. Half of those are coming from your teenager alone. Last 15 or 20 years, uh, texting, uh, that word text has become a verb. I text, she texts, they text it. But I'm using text as a noun. The Bible is the text. It is God's message to us, His Word in written form. We began this series last week with illumination. That was how truth is revealed to us. Very important. This morning the focus is inspiration. Where Scripture comes from. Where does it come from? Where's its origin? I was, uh, one of the mission trips that I was on to uh, Southeast Asia, I was with a uh, team, a couple of other guys, and uh, at one point during our trip, uh, we had to get in a cab to uh, travel somewhere, and as we got in, the, uh, the cab driver gave us each a bottle of water, and uh, I, I was thirsty, and uh, I, the water looked fine, and uh, as I went to look, I, I saw the... Uh, there was a, a lovely picture of uh, flowing water on the front, um, and, and yet it, wasn't, it didn't seem to be sealed. I thought, I, did I open this, or was it already open? And I was wondering, I, you know, I smelled the water, it smelled okay, I'm thirsty, and just as I was about to, yeah, well, let's see, I saw there was about a quarter of an inch of sediment on the bottom of the bottle. So I decided that I wouldn't drink it, even though it looked okay, smelled okay, I wasn't sure. I left it in the cab so that the next customer could have that privilege. Source is important. Where does it come from? And that's what we mean by inspiration, really. What is the source of the Bible? This text. Even though it has beautiful, inspiring words that have been treasured for thousands of years, the more important question is, where did it come from? And the answer to that is given very clearly by the Apostle Peter in his second letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, I could just take you to that one verse and show you right there directly the source of God's written word. But I actually want to start a few verses before that so that you can see why Peter makes that particular statement so strongly. Uh, we'll begin in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even back in Peter's time, there were some people who claimed that the teaching about Jesus' birth and life and resurrection, His promised return, were all just myths. They accused the apostles of making this all up. And Peter denies the charges that these are fabricated stories. He, he wants to verify the truth of Jesus. So, so really what happens next is, how can we know the story of Jesus is true? And, and what Peter goes on to, to share is, uh, there are three ways we know the story of Jesus is true. The disciples witnessed it, the Father confirmed it, the prophets certified it. So I want to take you through each of these. In just these few moments, each of these three ways we can know the story of Jesus is true. First of all, the disciples witnessed it. He says, verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says, we saw Christ's glory firsthand. And this covers everything, by the way, the disciples experienced in the years that they were with Jesus. They heard Him. They touched Him. 
They could say, we listened to his stories, we marveled at his words, we laughed at his jokes, we winced at his rebuke, we wondered at his wisdom, we saw him working playing and praying and eating and sleeping and walking dusty roads. We gawked at his miracles. We stared as he walked on water and healed the sick and fed thousands with one boy's lunch. We felt him wash our feet and calm us with a touch. And after his resurrection, we fell to our knees and worshipped him. We remember what he promised when he ascended into heaven. And the New Testament is filled with this eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Uh, but Peter is specifically referring to one incident in Jesus' life and ministry. And, and that was the time when Peter and James and John went with Jesus to a high mountain. And they watched as Jesus' appearance changed from the inside out. This is the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the moment Jesus was Bright light beamed from his face. His clothes were filled with light. And suddenly these three disciples saw two men talking with Jesus whom they realized were Moses and Elijah. And Peter got very excited and he wanted to build three monuments right then, one to each of them. This is an astounding event. It's recorded in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So how do you know the story of Jesus is true. He says we witnessed His glory. We witnessed it firsthand. Second, the Father confirmed it. Verse 17 and 18. For He, that's Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is My Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. So again, Peter is referring to that that special moment when the three disciples were with Jesus on the mountain. Peter's babbling with excitement. I, I want to build, uh, let let's build something to each of you. Let let's keep hold on to this very precious moment when suddenly a cloud of light covered the group and a voice sounded from deep in the cloud and said, This is my son. Listen to him. And then Jesus told them not to be afraid because they were afraid. And when they opened his eyes, only Jesus was there. He's the only one there. But this experience changed the lives of these men. They, they talked about it frequently. They heard the voice of God the Father identifying His Son, saying, listen to Him. By the way, the Father spoke from heaven as well at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened and God the Father spoke and said, this is My Son whom I love. So Jesus' miraculous power was evidence that He's the Son of God, but also the Father broke into human history to declare the identity of His Son. How do you know Jesus is true? The Father confirmed it. Third, the prophets certified it. Verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So when Peter talks about the prophetic word, he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures, the text that we hold in our hands. Scholar Richard Bauckham says that the terms prophetic word and Scripture were synonymous to the Jewish people. In other words, they, they considered all Scripture to be prophecy. So when Peter talks about prophecy, he's talking about all of Scripture. 
And Peter is telling us that everything that happened in Jesus' life proved just how true the Old Testament is. Jesus fulfilled what the prophets foretold. And by the way, depending on how you count, Jesus fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. The odds of one person fulfilling even just eight prophecies is 100 quadrillion to one. Now, just to picture that, to illustrate what that's like, if you took 100 quadrillion silver dollars, well, you would be rich, but if you took those 100 quadrillion silver dollars and covered the state of Texas, it would cover it to a depth of two feet. Now, if you marked one of those silver dollars with a sharpie and put that out there somewhere across the state of Texas, which I hear is kind of a big state, and then you blindfolded someone and said, go wherever you want and pick one silver dollar, the odds of that person going to pick that one silver dollar with the sharpie marking on it is 100 quadrillion to one. Those are the same odds of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. Hundreds. In fact, his birth alone fulfilled like 35 specific prophecies. So how do we know that Jesus is true? The prophets certify it. Peter This is something he got excited about. One of the sermons that we have recorded of Peter, Acts chapter 10, he says in verse 43 of Acts chapter 10, he says, all the prophets bear witness of Jesus. All the prophets are witnesses of Jesus. And he says, and the truth is, everyone who believes Jesus has forgiveness of sin. That's Acts 10, 43. So it's very important that this Jesus that we bear witness to is the one that you put your trust in. He is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's only by your faith and trust in the Son of God, Jesus Himself, who died on the cross, gave His life, and rose from the dead three days later that you can have life, that you can have a way to the Father. He is the only way. So Peter's argument here places the testimony of the apostles on par with the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, The report of those who saw the glory of Jesus and heard the words of Jesus is verified. The the written accounts of the apostles about Jesus has been witnessed and confirmed and certified. And it's all of this scripture that Peter says, all this scripture, that it would be good for you to pay attention to this. Now, I, if you've been around here very long, know this about me. I preach equally from the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we'll do, like we preach through the Gospel of Mark, the very next book we'll preach through will be an Old Testament book. And we'll try to spend about 50% of the time in each testament. There, there are pastors who don't preach from the Old Testament at all. I think that is a huge mistake. It's all Scripture. We need to hear all of it. All of it testifies to Jesus. We must not skip that. Now, Peter gives two reasons in this verse why we must not neglect any of God's Word, the Old Testament or anything that God has revealed. Here are those two reasons. Uh, he says, one, it's light in the darkness. He, he says, you've got to pay attention to this as a lamp shining in a dark place. Verse 19. Now that picture on your screen is um, the oven control panel in a house we used to live in. 
If you can't make out what those control instructions say, then you realize our problem. There was plenty of light, both natural and artificial, in our kitchen. We couldn't read those without a flashlight. So we'd have to get a flashlight in order to see, okay, what button do we press for bake or broil or whatever it is? And this was a double oven, so it's like, well, we got to get the right oven as well. And it took us forever to figure this out. And you couldn't see it without a flashlight. The, the, probably the only sentence that ever been uttered in anybody's house is, you know, I, I can't imagine anybody else having to say this, where's the flashlight? I have to cook dinner. So we had to move. But... Um, what Scripture does for us is reveal the darkness. Help us to see what we could not otherwise see. We can't see what to do. We can't see where to go. And the Word guides us like a light. It shows us how to interpret a situation. And if you don't pay attention to the Word, then you won't know what buttons to push in life. As Psalm 119 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. Your word is a light to my path. And if you belong to Jesus, this text is your guide. It gives light for every situation that you face. You won't find guidance from Scripture if you don't care enough to look or if you misapply what you do know. I talk to people all the time who, who simply are unwilling to do what Scripture says. They say, well, that won't work, or, or there must be a better way. And so no light enters into the darkness, and they continue to stumble and fall. But one reason you must pay attention to Scripture, Peter says, is that, especially the Old Testament he's speaking of, is that it gives the light of guidance. There's another reason. And that is, it's necessary until Jesus comes back. He says you've got to pay attention until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. See, the text is a great light. But there's a day coming when you won't need that light anymore because you will be face-to-face with the Savior, the only light that we will need. When we're in the presence of God, His Word won't be necessary because we'll be with the living Word. When we're no longer able to fear or doubt or sin, His Word won't be needed. But until Jesus returns, this text is indispensable. So don't get to the point where you feel like, well, I'm mature enough. I know enough. I've memorized the Ten Commandments. I can sing the books of the Bible song. I've got this down. I'm good. Nope, nope, nope. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, penetrating, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I need this Word to do surgery on me all the time, to check my attitude, to change my life, to shape me and grow me in a process that will not end until Jesus returns. Well, that brings us to the next couple of verses where Peter describes how we got the Bible. So what is the source of Scripture? What's the source? Peter says, verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now again, the word prophecy refers to all of Scripture. This isn't talking about predictive prophecy. That's part of Scripture. This is not foretelling, seeing the future. This is forthtelling all that God says. And the entire written Word of God is not the prophet's own interpretation. That word interpretation, the Greek word is epilusis, which means to unloosen. The prophet did not unloosen this word. He didn't set it loose. He didn't unleash it. 
The word did not originate with Moses or David or Isaiah. What is the source? What is the source of God's Word? Well, its source, its origin is from God through humans by the Spirit. That's what Peter tells us. And I want to break down each of those elements here and talk them through. To understand the source of Scripture, it is first of all from God. He says, verse 21, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but from God. Now, do you remember how John the Baptist died? Had his head cut off. Well, let me, let me remind you of the situation here, because this is actually important for understanding this verse. Uh, John the Baptist got thrown in prison for telling King Herod it was wrong for him to sleep with his sister-in-law, Herodias. Herod was angry that anyone would dare say that what he was doing was, was immoral. And so John is in prison. And uh, on the, the king's birthday, Herodias' daughter does like a pole dance routine that makes King Herod so happy. He tells her, I'll give you whatever you want. And so the girl asks her mother for advice. You know, this is what the king said. What should I ask for? And mom saw her chance to get even with John the Baptist for saying it was wrong for her to have sex with her brother-in-law, Herod. So she said what she should ask for is John the Baptist's head on a platter. So she went and asked for that. Herod had John's head cut off, carried out to the girl on a platter. She then took that platter, brought it to her mother, carried it to her mother. The Gospels tell us this very explicitly. So, what I want to point out to you is that the carrying of the head, the bringing out of the head on a platter, is the same Greek word as the word translated origin. Think about it. How did we get the Bible? No human decided to put it on a platter and deliver it. No humans carried it out and said, here it is. That's what this is. Origin is not from man. No one brought this out on a platter. The idea did not come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Paul. David wasn't walking along the hillside and thinking to himself, you know, I probably should write some of this stuff down that I'm I'm singing about here. Let's see. What would sound good? Um, The Lord is my farmer. No, 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 no. Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That's good. Got to write that down. That's good. No, no, no. Did not come from the will of man. The scriptures came from God. How? Through humans. Scripture is from God through humans. Verse 21 says, men spoke from God. Humans didn't originate it, God did, but God spoke through those writers. God originated the message, He's the source, and delivered it through all these different people. At least 35 different people wrote over a period of 1,500 years the Scriptures we hold in our hands. David Daniel says this, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, how can the Bible come from God? Moses wrote the first five books of Scripture, and most of the Psalms were written by David. And in the New Testament, Paul has 13 books to his name. John has five. We're reading a letter from, uh, written by the Apostle Peter. So how can you say God's the author of Scripture? Well, Peter tells us how God used human beings to write the Scriptures. Inspiration does not mean dictation. God didn't say to Paul, sit down and copy everything I say word for word. No, when I read my Bible, Isaiah sounds much different from Amos. Isaiah writes with a very eloquent style. Very literal, literary, very beautiful. Amos, on the other hand, he's a sheep herder. And he writes simply and plainly. 
When I come to the New Testament, the, the writings of John are very much different than the writings of the Apostle Paul. John uses imagery, story. Paul uses legal terminology and didactic reasoning. And, and so the books of the Bible carry the personality of their writers. So there's some humanity in the writings of Scripture. That's how God used it. And not only that, when I look at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke says, hey, when I began to write... He didn't say hey. Sorry, that wasn't in the Greek. He says, when I began to write my Gospel, I went out and talked to eyewitnesses. And I gathered together archives and I carefully arranged everything. So there's this sense in which human beings really played a part in the assembly of God's Word. But what part did they play? And how did these writers who were fallible, imperfect human beings, how did they write Scripture from God? Well, that brings us to that last clause. By the Spirit. Scripture's from God through humans by the Spirit. Verse 21 says they were carried along by the Spirit. Now, let me bring another connection in here. That word that I translated for you that was origin, that means to be carried, that's the same word here. Okay, So the same word that describes how John's head was carried out on a platter, it's also the same word used in the Gospels when these four friends had a paralyzed friend that they wanted to take to Jesus. He obviously couldn't walk. There's a big crowd around Jesus. So they carried him. They each picked up a, a corner of his mat and they carried him to Jesus. They actually had to lower him through the roof, but they carried him there. He couldn't get there alone. That's the same Greek word. How did imperfect people write the words of God? The Spirit carried them. They didn't carry the Word themselves. No, the Spirit carried them to write what God said. Using their own style, their natural gifts, their abilities, their experiences, the Spirit guided them to write exactly what God wanted them to write. The Holy Spirit protected them from error. He carried the writers to express God's thoughts through human personality. Now there's another text that tells us this explicitly, and that's 2 Timothy 3.16. This says, all Scripture is God-breathed. This text was breathed out of God. It is inspirited. It's the Spirit of God gave it out. That's what inspiration means. Spirit came from within God. It reflects God's life. It reflects God's language. So when we say that the Bible was inspired by God, it doesn't mean that God just thought the thoughts of the Bible. It means He breathed out His life and His language so that what we have today is not just a great book or good spiritual source for light. It is We have the Word of God. The living God has spoken and given His light and life to His people. So Scripture is from God, through humans, by the Spirit. What difference does that make? Well, let me give you a couple of implications about this. The first is that the Bible is truthful. If the Bible comes from God, then the Bible must re reflect something of God's character. And if God is truth, if God is always right, if God is righteous and without error, then, then I can trust that the Bible coming from God is without error as well. In fact, I believe that you can't hold to inspiration, that this is from God, without also holding to inerrancy, that the Bible is without error. Uh, to say that in reverse, if the Bible contains errors, then it cannot be solely the work of God. You might say, well, what about that troubling passage I read just yesterday? Well, more often than not, I, the reality is I find the, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, that it contradicts me and my understanding. 
The challenge I often have is the limitation of my mind, the diligence of my study, and frankly, there are some presuppositions that I hold to that make it difficult for me to understand what the Bible is actually saying. Uh, that, that my culture clouds some of what the Bible says. It's really difficult for us to come to Scripture with all fairness and allow the Bible to read us as we read the Bible. Another implication, if Scripture is from God, is that the Bible is helpful. It's helpful. See, there are things that can be true and not be helpful. So let's say you're sitting at your table and you got all your bills in front of you and you're wondering how you're going to pay them this month and the news comes on and there's a report that Mark Zuckerberg is now worth $68.9 billion. Well, that's true, but doesn't help you. Doesn't help you at all. That truth is relevant, is not relevant for what you need. He's not your friend. I don't think he ha- probably doesn't have a, a soft spot for people who go to church. But if you're sitting there trying to pay the bills and suddenly you get a text message from Zuckerberg that says, hey, I just made another $5 billion. Do you need anything? That might be helpful. So if the eternal God cares enough to communicate with you, what he has to say is going to be helpful for you. What, what he says is true has impact in your life. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. So th- this word is useful. It's because the Bible comes from God that it becomes helpful to teach me, to correct me, to challenge me, to give me the resources I need to be the person God intends me to be in life. So what do you do with that today? What are you going to do with that today? The Bible is inspired, it's truthful, helpful. How are you going to respond to that? Well, let me offer just a suggestion. Simply put, pay attention to Scripture and let it bother you. Pay attention to it and let it bother you. The person, Peter said, pay attention to this word. You would do well to pay attention. So I'm calling you, pay attention to, to this word. The person who digs into God's word, reads it, loves it, explores it, studies it, values it, meditates on it, finds that their life will be more and more shaped like Jesus. The Bible sitting on your night table or in your desk drawer or on your bookshelf does no good. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, the the chances are very great that you've downloaded one or more Bible apps. The Gideons have one. Uh, uh, I can't think of the 17 others that I have on my phone right now, but there are many, many others. And and when's the last time you used it? You know what I like that I don't take advantage of near enough, but what I like is, you know, i got an app that reads the Bible to me. So I'm out walking, I'm out doing something, and the Word of God is being read to me. There's like zero effort on my part. And, I, and I'm hearing this, laying that roll around in my eye. Now, frequently I'm asked, this is the, the question, I'm not the most frequent question, we won't get into that, but one of the most frequent questions I get is, which version of the Bible do you use? Um, and, and often it's because somebody's looking to buy a Bible and they want to know, well, which Bible should I buy? Or sometimes they want to check to see if I'm a heretic, if I'm using some version they don't approve of. But The truth is, every week I open at least three different English versions. Every week. I usually quote at least three in any given sermon. Three different versions. Uh, And in addition to the original languages, Greek and Hebrew looking at. So which version of the Bible is best? Well, as scholar Peter Williams says, whichever one you read a lot. Whichever one you read a lot. Because you need to pay attention, as I do, to Scripture. This week, one of the small groups I was teaching, one of the guys shared... What a difference it's made in his life just to spend the first 15 minutes or half an hour of his day just reading Scripture. 
This is a young guy. Huge difference. It's made in his life. Pay attention to Scripture and let it bother you. To say the Bible is without error doesn't mean the Bible is not challenging. It's very challenging. There are sections of Scripture I don't understand. There are passages that make me scratch my head and, and say, God, I don't know what to do with this. But instead of letting it drive me to doubt, I wrestle with it. I struggle with the Word. You've got to trust the Bible enough to let it challenge you and correct your thinking. If if there is not stuff in here that I find difficult and challenging and objectionable and mystifying, then I would say this is not God's Word. Because if a holy God wrote this to sinful people like me, there are going to be things that contradict my desires and my plans and my attitudes. And that means it's good to be challenged. And say, God, I'm having trouble with this. I don't get this. I don't understand it. I don't like it. John Piper says, if we care about the truth, we must relentlessly query the text and form the habit of being humbly bothered by what we read. So we're just asking, God, what is this? And allow it to bother us. If I want to have the mind of Christ instead of my own mind, I need to let this book challenge me. Be humbly bothered by it. That will help shape me more like Jesus. Now we have two daughters, they're 10 years apart, so our first uh, daughter, you know, I, we're really busy, um, but we had a lot of energy. Our second daughter, not as busy, but not as much energy either, so it's, it's, but we're two, 10 years apart, very different worlds. So when our oldest daughter, she's in high school, you know, she'd be in a drama production or some, uh, some uh, youth group function or what, and you know, I need to go pick her up. And, and so there's no cell phone. At least I didn't have one. And, and, and so there's no way to know. Like, we just have to set a time and trust that we would each remember that, you know, I, I'm out there waiting for you and it's time to, to, to come in. And, and, you know, that was a little, little bit of a challenge. Well, 10 years later, our youngest daughter had a cell phone when she was in high school and we had a cell phone. So when she, uh, often, uh, every week, she would have her small group after school and they would meet in a restaurant and I would, after work, I would go to that restaurant and wait outside and, and uh, to, to, to take her home. And, and so when I would get there, it was, just, it was so great not to have to wait and wonder where she is, to just text her and say, Dad's here. That's here. And, you know, and she really liked it when I put, and he loves you. She liked that part. And so it was great that she just come right out and everything was, was wonderful. I just want you to realize that we hold in our hands the Word of the living God to us. And the more you read it and embrace it and study it and wrestle with it and apply it, the more you discover that your Heavenly Father is here and He loves you. 